Good morning. History is always written by those who survive, but to perpetuate, but what pep, sorry, I get my mouth going, but what perpetuates through time is the story the victors want told. Most of us learned the basics of the Cortez expedition in school. The upshot is that Cortez arrived with fewer than 500 conquistadors, and through his brilliant leadership, cunning, political astuteness, and outright hubris, managed to persuade native communities to support him. Oh, sorry, going the wrong direction. <laughs> the island of Hispaniola was the first island to be settled with the establishment of Santo Domingo. Its adelantado was Bartholomew Columbus, Christopher's younger brother. His lieutenant was Diego Velasquez de Cuellar. Both men grew rich in Hispaniola through the ownership of encomiendas with a workforce of enslaved native people mining gold and silver. In 1511, 19 years after Columbus's first voyage, the Spanish crown promised to reimburse Diego Velasquez if he would finance an expedition to Cuba. The king never repaid him, but he did make him the first governor of Cuba. As governor, he positioned Cuba as a trading center and a staging point for expeditions of conquest elsewhere. The trade that developed enabled him to build a fleet of ships. He was the wealthiest man in the Caribbean. He hired one of the better educated Spaniards to be his personal secretary, Hernán Cortés. The first expedition was the Cordoba expedition. Three ships explored the Yucatan coast. Many Spanish were killed in a battle with highly skilled Mayan warriors. Hernández was mortally wounded. This expedition, financed by Diego Velázquez, who intended to become the viceroy of any new lands that might be discovered and conquered in the West. The next expedition was the Grijalva expedition. Grijalva was Velasquez's nephew. He was tasked with exploring and mapping the coast, but because he needed to resupply his ships with food and water, he had several violent encounters with native people, mostly the Mayans. At Velasquez's request, Cortez organized a fleet of 11 ships to explore what they thought was merely a large island, the Yucatan. Most of the ships were privately owned, involved in trade between the Caribbean islands and Europe. Velasquez's advisors warned him that Cortez could not be trusted. So while Velasquez was having second thoughts, Cortez set sail in the middle of the night and headed west. Velasquez sent a ship to tell him to turn back, but he refused. This was clearly treason against the crown because Velasquez was the only legitimate representative of the king. Three of the captains in the group were loyal to Velasquez, so they stayed with Cortez and acted as spies for their boss. On Cozumel Island, Cortez heard greetings in Spanish coming from a local boat. Jerónimo de Aguilar, a priest, lost at sea eight years before, 
had ended up on the Yucatan Peninsula where he and a few other survivors were enslaved by the Mayans. Cortez rescued Aguilar and welcomed him to the expedition as the first interpreter. On the north side of the Yucatan, the Spaniards fought a multi-day battle with the Maya of Potonchan. When the Spaniards finally prevailed, the Lord of Potonchan surrendered by giving Cortez many treasures, which included several slaves. One was a girl, Malinali, who spoke both Mayan and Nahuatl. She was uh, Cortez's second interpreter, whom he, named, he renamed her Malinche. Malinche became the most important person on the expedition, in spite of the fact that she's barely mentioned in the Spanish Chronicles. Without her, Cortez would have had a very difficult time engaging with any Nahuatl-speaking people, including the Aztecs. The 11 ships anchored off the coast of Uluwa. Wait a sec. I guess that's right. Uh, the 11 ships anchored off the coast of Uluwa on March 4th, 1519. The land encampment was infested with mosquitoes. Two days later, an entourage of emissaries from Montezuma arrived, and they arranged for the Spaniards to be fed and properly housed and brought valuable gifts of pearls, carved stone, and gold. From April through August 1519, the Spaniards built a stronghold near Sempoala, a Totonac town they fought with and later joined. Cortez now had three interpreters, a Nahua-speaking Totonac to talk to Malinche. She translated Nahua to Mayan for Aguilar, and he translated it into Spanish. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> the Spanish established a town, Villa Rica de la Veracruz, to change the legal definition of their endeavor from an exploratory expedition to a colonizing company. By colonizing, Cortez was able to convince the king, he hoped he would be able to convince the king that he was not a traitor. Cortez and the 10 captains squabbled often about what to do next, whether they had enough men and supplies to overcome the Aztecs. Some wanted to return to Cuba where they could join the next legitimate Velazquez expedition. Cortez convinced the men to give up most of their personal treasure to send to the king who would surely reward them handsomely in the future for their efforts on his behalf. I guess they didn't learn anything from Velasquez's previous <laughs> problems. <laughs> um, Cortez sent the accumulated treasure to Hispaniola with specific instructions not to resupply in Cuba. The three captains, who were loyal to Velasquez, took the ship to Cuba, where Velasquez became acutely aware of Cortez's plans. After the, ships tre the treasure ships left, Cortez claimed that he burned all the other ships so none of the men could desert and return to Cuba. Aztec emissaries spent time with the men from Castile, whom they called Castilteca. They easily communicated with the Totonac rulers, who may have joined forces with the Castilteca at Montezuma's request in order to gather information that Montezuma wanted. In August, the Totonacs guided the Spaniards toward Tlaxcala in a grueling two-week trip over mountains and valleys. 
Montezuma's emissaries accompanied them the whole way. This is their route. Though much smaller than the Aztec Triple Alliance, the Tlaxcala Alliance consisted of four powerful cities and a huge army of warriors. They were the Aztecs' most powerful enemies. They, too, were descendants of Aztlan, and they had the same Aztec religion, and they spoke Nahuatl. The Totonacs went on ahead of the Spaniards, supposedly to arrange a friendly welcome in Tlaxcala. But the Spaniards, when they arrived on October 23rd, tired and hungry, the Tlaxcalans began a series of ambushes and major assaults. They were relentless. The conquistadors fought for 18 days with the Tlaxcala and their allies from nearby Huexotzinco. The Spaniards conducted nighttime raids on nearby villages, indiscriminately slaughtering everyone they could find. Finally, unable to withstand the loss of life in the supporting villages, the Tlaxcalans capitulated. They didn't trust the Spaniards, but at least the devastation had stopped. The Spaniards then spent 17 days recovering inside the city, where they convinced the Tlaxcalans to help them attack Tenochtitlan. One of the Tlaxcalan Alliance cities, Cholula, had recently defeated, defected and joined the Aztec Alliance. The Tlaxcalans convinced Cortes to go to Cholula for supplies, even though Huexotzinco was closer and equally provisioned. What they had in mind was revenge. On October 14th, a huge contingent of warriors, and now fewer than 300 Spaniards, arrived at Cholula and camped for the night outside the fortified city. The next day, only the Spaniards were welcomed inside with gifts. They stayed for three days. Cortez was told that the Aztecs had an army nearby that would aid Cholula if needed. When most of the leadership of the city had assembled in the central plaza with the Spaniards, they drew swords and massacred hundreds. They fired shots to inform the Tlaxcalans, who quickly stormed the walls and killed thousands more. The supposed Aztec army never showed up. Over the next two weeks, the Tlaxcalans sacked the city and took captives while the Spaniards gathered supplies and planned their next move. November 1st, 1519, the Spaniards began the march to Tenochtitlan over the pass between the great volcan volcanoes Popocatépetl and Ixtaccíhuatl. It was a high and dangerous pass, but Cortes believed it to be safer than going back towards Tlaxcala to the flatter route where the Aztecs' numerous warriors could possibly overwhelm them. The Spanish Tlaxcalan army, totaling 10,000, came over the pass to behold the entire Valley of Mexico and its 1.2 million people. Along the way, they were welcomed by emissaries from Montezuma and fed and housed by the vassal cities. So this is a close-up of the causeways in the city. On November 8th, the Spaniards and their Tlaxcalan allies walked the long flower-lined causeway from Ixtapalapa while citizens in boats and on nearby islands watched them in wonder. 
none had ever seen horses or men with shining metal clothing. So they walked from Ixtapalapa up the causeway, took a right angle turn, and went into Tenochtitlan. And it was all a beautiful giant highway, basically. On the causeway, Cortez was greeted by Montezuma and his royal escort. Cortez dismounted and attempted to embrace Montezuma, but was immediately repelled by three princes. Cortez and his captains had expected to do what the conquistadors normally did, attack the city, capture the leader, threaten to kill him, threaten further violence, take possession of the city, make a claim of conquest to the king, and be greatly rewarded for their efforts. Instead, they were invited into the city, given a palace to live in, fed, housed, provided with fermented agave and numerous women. They had free reign of the city, but weren't allowed to leave it. To legitimately claim a conquest, though, the Spaniards needed to provide a narrative with elements of the conquest storyline. In Cortez's second letter to the king, written over a year later, he said that Montezuma had surrendered almost immediately to him and swore his allegiance to his majesty. Sometime later, supposedly on November 14th, he arrested Montezuma and kept him prisoner to prevent the populace from rebelling. Montezuma moved into the palace with the Spaniards and continued running the entire empire with permission from Cortes. No Aztec sources mentioned that Montezuma lived with the Spaniards, only that he and the princes interacted with them on most days. The Spaniards then spent the next 235 days in the city. Very little is written about this period of time. Not one letter was sent to the king, and few journals were written despite the fact that the Spaniards had paper and pen. Vasquez de Tapia later wrote, quote, the day, that next day we entered Mexico, and we were there for eight months, more or less. During that time, important things happened that, in order not to be long-winded, I shall leave out. <laughs> According to Spanish accounts, even when he was a prisoner of the conquistadors, Montezuma continued to freely engage in the business of Hue Tatolani of the empire. His entourage included some of the con conquistadors, just as it included warriors from other vassal states. He frequently left Tenochtitlan to attend festivals, meetings with other leaders, and to go on hunting trips. So Cortes is recalled to Veracruz. Velazquez sent a large army to Veracruz to take over Cortez's operations and to bring him back to Cuba in chains to face charges of treason. Panfilo de Narvaez arrived April 20th, 19 ships with about 900 men and took over the garrison at Villa Rica de la Veracruz. He sent word that he expected Cortez to return at once. So Cortez took most of the men, leaving only 80 in Tenochtitlan. He raced back to Veracruz and arrived on May 27th. He was heavily outnumbered, but his men were seasoned fighters. During the battle, Narvaez lost an eye and was captured. 
With the promise of vast riches in the magical city that Cortez described, Narvaez captains agreed to join forces with Cortez to complete the conquest of Tenochtitlan. Cortez returned with a total contingent of around 1,200 conquistadors and another 1,000 Tlaxcala warriors. Meanwhile, back in Tenochtitlan, Cortez had left Pedro de Alvarado in charge of the conquistadors. He specifically forbade any military action. Alvarado tortured some nobles demanding where gold was hidden, and one of them supposedly revealed that the Aztecs planned to overthrow the Spanish while Cortez was gone. Alvarado decided on May 22, 1520, to use the festival of Toscatl as cover for a takeover. The plaza where the dances were held was blocked off, and the Spaniards attacked the unarmed dancers with swords, killing hundreds, including many members of the royal family. The Spaniards quickly retreated to their mansion. In retaliation, the Aztecs laid siege to the Spanish compound. They did not allow the Spaniards to come out, nor food or water to be brought in. Then they elected a new Tlatoani, Montezuma's younger brother, Cuitlahuac. Montezuma was had presumably Montezuma had presumably been overwhelmed during the festival and was now held captive inside of the compound, which motivated Cuitlahuac to allow food to be given to the Spaniards. He allowed Cortez access when he returned a few weeks later, but the Spaniards remained barricaded inside the mansion. La triste la noche triste. Cortez ordered Montezuma to address his people from a terrace to persuade them to stop fighting and allow the Spaniards to leave the city in peace. The Aztecs, however, jeered at Montezuma and pelted him with stones and darts. Cortez claimed Montezuma was killed in this assault, but the Aztecs believed he had already been killed by the Spanish and was propped up to look like he was alive. With Montezuma dead, the Spaniards were in a very precarious position. Cortez made plans to break out of the city. He ordered the gold to be packed for carrying and invited Spanish soldiers to take and carry away as much as they could of what remained. Heavy rain and a moonless night provided cover. Cortez had selected the western causeway to Tlacopan, the quickest route out of Tenochtitlan. The Spaniards were discovered and had to fight their way out of the city and across the causeway. More battles ensued with forces from Tlacopan before they were able to head north. His company was almost annihilated. Many were lost when they couldn't keep up the pace, or they fell into the water and were dragged down by all the gold they were carrying. In Tlaxcala, the beleaguered conquistadors rested and regrouped. Cortez began planning his next step, the siege of Tenochtitlan. Meanwhile, the great city was in shambles. One of several African slaves who came on a ship with Narvaez had smallpox. He'd been too sick to leave with the Spaniards. Within a year, fully half of the population of Tenochtitlan was dead from the disease, including Cuitlahuac. A cousin of Montezuma, Cuauhtémoc, was elected Tlatoani in February 1521. Now, I could go on for an hour detailing all the stuff that happened to create this siege, but I, I won't. 
<laughs> we want to get on with the rest of the story. This is the siege in a nutshell. Cortez had several advantages after he rejoined the Tlaxcalans. They had forests of wood, and he had a master shipbuilder. The Aztec alliance was shifting rapidly with many of the vassal states now willing to risk joining Cortez. He continued to receive a steady stream of men and military supplies from Cuba and Hispaniola. The intention was to lay siege to Tenochtitlan by sealing off land and water. When his men destroyed the Aztec canals that brought fresh water from Chapultepec Springs, he set the stage for the final battles. His forces destroyed the causeway that kept the briny lake water separated from the fresh, which caused the surviving Aztecs to contract dysentery. It also opened the lake so the Spanish could control access to the water right up to the shores of Tenochtitlan. The newly constructed brigantines with oarsmen, sails, and firearms were able to crash over canoes and dump warriors into the water. The Spanish could fire on Tenochtitlan from anywhere in the lake. The ruined roads and blocked canals prevented any Aztec allies from sending over warriors or supplies. The Spaniards eventually entered Tenochtitlan and destroyed buildings with cannons to open up the field of battle. Their use of arquebuses and catapults allowed them to move deep into the center of the city. The fighting was intense. Assaults continued day and night until Cuauhtémoc and his family were intercepted, trying to escape by canoe and were detained. August 13, 1521, with Tenochtitlan in ruins and the Aztec forces destroyed, Cortes demanded the return of the gold lost during La Noche Triste. Under torture by burning their feet with oil, Cuauhtémoc and the Lord of Tacuba confessed to dumping his gold and jewels into the lake. Little treasure remained as much earlier. A fifth of the spoils had been sent to Spain, and another fifth was kept by Cortes. In the end, the conquistadors, who had been promised untold riches, earned less money than they would have if they'd worked at regular jobs for the same period of time. So now we'll talk about Montezuma and the whole Aztec Empire. This is a picture, the pink is the Aztec Empire. You can see where, um, where Tlaxcala is, it's kind of the large orangey spot, or light yellow spot uh, just to the east of Tenochtitlan. In 1519, the Aztec Empire was the most powerful Mesoamerican kingdom of all time. The empire was an alliance of three Nahuatl-speaking Altepetls, or city-states, Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopan. The Mexica capital of Tenochtitlan had become a city of 300,000 people, and the Aztec Empire itself ruled over about 80,000 square miles of territory extending from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean and southward into Oaxaca and Chiapas. This empire contained some 15 million people living in 38 provinces. In all, the Hue Tlatoani received tribute from 489 communities. 
Montezuma was the Tlatoani of Tenochtitlan and the Huey Tlatoani of the Triple Alliance. He was born into a royal family, raised and educated to be a warrior, a priest, and leader. He descended from the first Tlatoani 180 years before, as were all male members of the royal family. He had been elected unanimously by the Royal Council of the Alliance. Early on, he was viewed as the best possible man to run the empire because of his intelligence, his prowess as a warrior and a strategist. He was an insatiably curious man who collected things from around the empire, and he was well supplied with curiosities by traders who were called Pochtecas. Montezuma maintained a huge collection housed in several palaces and outdoor spaces. The Spanish wrote of the tremendous noise coming from the zoo, the roaring of big cats, barking and howling of wolves, honking geese, screaming monkeys. Zookeepers were a specialized group who cared for the animals and wrote extensively about their habits and what they ate. Dangerous animals were kept in well-built cages. In addition, Montezuma had an aviary with every bird that could be caught and a mansion that housed human oddities, deformed people, and dwarves. The gardens were immense and contained examples of almost every known plant in Mexico. And a large building housed, housed the library, annals sent to Tenochtitlan by every altipetl, documenting what happened each year. Ledgers of tributes received from vassal states spanned decades. Religious books on all the gods and how they were to be worshipped. Poetry, plays, books on war and strategy, and correspondence with other leaders. The zoo alone was singular in the known world. Royalty in Europe sometimes had menageries, but nothing compared to the number of animals in Montezuma's zoo, which included insects, reptiles, fish, and even crocodiles. In truth, Montezuma was a collector. This is the Aztec sunstone, also called the calendar stone. It consists of 365 days of the year, uh, called the year count, and 260-day ritual cycle called the day count. These two cycles come together every 52 years to form a century, sometimes called the calendar round. The year count is the agricultural calendar since it's based on the sun, and the day count is the sacred calendar. That consists of 18 20-month days. At the end of each month, a festival celebrated the god or gods to which that month was dedicated, almost always with one or several human sacrifices. The Templo Mayor, or the Great Temple, dominated the central precinct of the Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan, topped by twin temples dedicated to the war god Huitzilopochtli, and the rain god Tlaloc. It was a focal point of the Aztec religion and was the center of the Aztec world. The sacrifice of human beings had a complex socioeconomic aspect that required sacrifices to come in the form of warriors captured during pre-planned skirmishes or special people who were groomed for the honor. The Spanish were shocked when indigenous warriors that they rescued from being sacrificed 
were humiliated and very angry about it. Some festivals, like Toshkatl, sacrificed only one man who had been impersonating the god Teshkatlipoka for an entire year. Teshkatlipoka was the dark god of chaos and mischief. His festival was in progress when Pedro de Alvarado decided to attack. The young impersonator had spent a year wandering the city, playing a flute, and entertaining people who gave him clothes and food. During the last month, he was married to four wives and given a mansion to live in. On the last day, he climbed the steps of the temple to be sacrificed. His heart was quickly removed with an obsidian knife, and his head was cut off to be mounted on the simpotli, a rack at the base of the temple for sacrificed heads to be prominently displayed. So this is from one of the codexes showing the twin temples and the rack. The Aztecs had many technological advances that enabled them to maintain a large population that in turn supported their rise to power in the region. They walled off the saltier part of the lake with a long causeway that was in fact a dam to ensure fresh water for farming on the west side. So you can see the dark blue, that causeway, it's just a straight line dam holding the lake apart. They used the salty marshes to harvest microscopic algae and brine shrimp, which they ground into a tasty protein paste. They built stone canals to transport spring water for drinking. So they didn't have a problem with water pollution for what they were drinking. Andesite volcanic tuff was a sturdy stone and easy to cut with stone tools. It made up the majority of the stone monuments and the palaces. Thousands of canoes and barge-like boats built, moved building blocks, heavy goods, military equipment, and people very efficiently. The farmers composted human waste by collecting it daily from homes and public latrines. It was the primary reason their gardens were so productive and the lake water was relatively unpolluted. They built floating gardens called chinampas that were largely self-irrigating by constructing walls with wooden poles and reeds woven between to keep the mud and compost inside of the structure. Wetland trees like willows with sprawling root systems helped hold the system together. Like the Europeans, the Aztecs had calendars, writing, a mathematical system, and complex social structure where most people were in the lower levels of society with nobility and military at the top. Composers wrote music, plays, and poetry. Goods were crafted and sold in the marketplaces. Skilled artisans painted pictures, created jewelry, beautiful clothes, feathered costumes, and carved figures in jade. They worshiped their gods, whom they believed helped them when they showed proper respect and punished them when they did not. The major difference between Europe and Aztecs were that the Aztecs sacrificed other humans and ate the remains. The Aztecs viewed the sacrifice of a person as a liberation of the soul from the, for the benefit of the gods. The head and skin held spiritual aspects of the person. Heads were displayed and a warrior's skin was often given to the captor to wear. The limbs of a body were consumed, but generally only by the upper classes, in order to commune with the gods. 
Aztec nobles may have found it odd that Christians were horrified at the idea of cannibalism when they themselves ritually ate the flesh and drank the blood of their God to remember him. Cortez's tale of setting the boats on fire to prevent anyone from leaving the expedition was simply unbelievable. Considering the enormous value of the ships, most of which were owned by the captains and were not under Cortez's control. Recent research has revealed that because there was no shipyard, no port, no way to make major repairs, and since most of the ships were already showing signs of rot, the captains decided to remove the sails and all the hardware. About 100 men were left behind to protect that equipment, all of which was invaluable when the Spaniards built brigantines to use on Lake Texcoco. How much of this conquest story is pure fabrication by Cortez? Montezuma's capitulation speech, written years later by Cortez, was flowery and humble, not the language of a leader who had successfully managed the largest empire in the New World for 20 years. Clearly, Cortez enjoyed Montezuma's hospitality for a very long time. Perhaps the only way he could convince the king that he was in full control of the situation was to pretend he had arrested the Tlatoani. Cortez described Montezuma as helpful, humble, fearful of the Spaniards, eager to please, naive, and very superstitious. Montezuma's gifts of gold and jewels sent several times to the expedition as they traveled across country, always contained the message that Cortez should accept the gifts and go home. Yet, the Tlatoani welcomed them as if he'd been planning their visit for a very long time. So what was Montezuma thinking? Matthew Restall, in his 2018 book, When Montezuma Met Cortez, postulates that it was never Cortez in control of the journey from Veracruz to Tenochtitlan. It was Montezuma. Montezuma's intellect, his knowledge of the cultural landscape, and his relatively unlimited resources enabled him to observe and manipulate Spanish actions. His vassals, the Sempoala, hosted the Spanish and guided them to the Tlaxcala at Montezuma's request. The initial war with Campoala clearly demonstrated Spanish abilities and technology. Getting the Spanish to attack Tlaxcala, the strongest of Tenochtitlan's enemies, served to test the Spanish tenacity and commitment. Gifts, gifts of gold and jewelry had been met with signs of greed and infighting among the soldiers, all of which showed what motivated these strange newcomers. More gifts acted as enticing lures. Requests for them to go home simply fueled suspicion that there was a lot more gold in Tenochtitlan. If these speculations are more realistic than the Cortez as hero narrative, then, what, then when was Montezuma really killed? He probably attended the Toshcatl festival and was captured and wounded in the massacre, which held prisoners then held as a prisoner in hopes that his presence would keep the populace from overrunning the Spanish. He may have been dead by the time Cortez returned. Cortez assumed that Montezuma's attempts to get the Spaniards to go home revealed his terror of the conquistadors. 
Cortez was surprised when the emperor invited them in and gave them a mansion to live in right next to the complex of menageries, aviaries, and beautiful gardens. Even though he realized the invitation was a risk, Cortez had faith in his men and their superior fighting abilities. He never suspected that they might have just been collected as the newest dangerous species for Montezuma's zoo. Throughout human history, there have been people willing to sacrifice everything to take what they did not make or earn from other people. And those attacked risk everything to resist them. In the context of history, it didn't matter what any of the indigenous leaders in the New World did. They would have eventually been overrun by the Europeans. The diseases, measles, smallpox, typhus, and cholera killed far more people than Spanish swords ever could. By the end of the first century of occupation, the indigenous population of Mexico was one-tenth of its original size. We all have thoughts and beliefs about history, our own life stories and the long arc of mankind. But our thoughts are mere drops in an ocean of truth. When we attempt a deep dive into that ocean, details are revealed and conclusions can be drawn that differ from the version the victors told. But, m but more than conclusions, we discover that the ocean is enormous, and the best we can do is learn the lessons that history teaches us about human nature.